Hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. And what do I got for you today? Today we're going to talk about the British monarchy, specifically the passing of Queen Elizabeth II. And then we're going to take a big look at the developments in Ukraine's Kherson offensive and how it's panned out and how it's likely to go moving forward. All that and more coming up. Alrighty, let's get into the rapid fire news. So we have we have the U.S. Uh, in the United States. We have marked the 21st anniversary of the 9/11 attacks, and I guess I'll just take this moment to say again, we can avoid situations like this. Like I was watching a video the other day of Ron Paul. This is during uh, one of the debates. I think it was for. It might have been the president. It, I didn't get the full context of the clip on, you know, where, what specifically he was on the debate stage for, but he was speaking and 9-11 was brought up and he basically went on a tangent because from what I could discern, uh, his stance of non-interventionism was essentially accused as being part of the problem for 9-11 and how 9-11 happened and he rebutted saying that the reason they attacked us on 9-11, they being Al-Qaeda, the reason they attacked us wasn't because we have freedom, wasn't because we have democracy, it wasn't because we are a, a capitalist nation. It's not because of any of that. It's because we had troops in Saudi Arabia, the Holy Lands. Because for Islam, Mecca and Medina are the two holy cities of your religion so for the united states a christian nation to have troops defending the islamic holy cities was an offense to them and so they went out of their way to attack us now we're over there and which makes it easier for them to kill us and so not needing to justify anything that they did we can take from that and learn like if being over there caused the problem and 3,000 people died on 9-11 so uh, this is very relevant to us especially as we're passing the anniversary 3,000 people died because people over there got upset by us being over there so if we want to avoid situations like that then all we have to do conveniently enough, is just to leave. That's all we have to do, is just leave. But instead, we don't get that. We get calls to stay, which will only breed more of the same problem. And it, I can get into a, a whole tangent about interventionism, breeding interventionism. Uh, you've already heard me say it a million times by now. It causes problems, which it uses to justify more of the same thing, which in turn creates more of those problems. And the mindset a lot of people have towards 9-11 is a primary example of that. We may end up with another if we continue down this path, but we don't have to do that. Like, 
I don't have to justify the actions of Al-Qaeda or the attackers on 9-11. I don't have to justify their actions to say that we can avoid situations like that by leaving these people to their own devices. We don't need to be over there in the Middle East. We don't need to have troops in Saudi Arabia. And if we didn't, perhaps 9-11 wouldn't have happened. Now, what would you prefer? 9-11 happening or not happening? I prefer not happening. And if all we have to do to make sure that something like that has had the absolute minimum chance of happening again, if all we have to do is leave and bring our troops home, well, by golly, let's just bring the troops home. Well, that That's my two cents, you know, taking the opportunity uh, to try to get us away from these types of situations. You know, as controversial as my message may be, well, maybe it's not controversial to you, my lovely listeners, but it's definitely not the mainstream, although it is nice to hear more and more people talking about non-interventionism. Although, oddly enough, it's primarily more left-wing voices. It's strange to see the, the America First conservatives completely leave the anti-war position to the left. They just leave that lane so wide open, it's insane. But I digress. So, uh, my heart goes out to all the victims of 9-11 and all the people who had family who were victims of 9-11. And hopefully we can course correct our policies so that something like that doesn't happen again. And, but that's, uh, that's 9-11. Uh, in other news, a magnitude 7.6 earthquake has hit Papua New Guinea. Uh, this is a, a part of a chain of natural disasters which have just been absolutely wrecking the countries of South and Southeast Asia as of late. Uh, with chief among them being Pakistan. Uh, goodness, Pakistan just... Uh, I, I don't know what to say about Pakistan at this point. It just, it just doesn't seem to stop for Pakistan. Like, every week, the flooding just gets worse. And when you look at a map, it's like, I could swear this country is 99% desert. <laughs> well, that's an exaggeration. I could swear that <laughs> at least 60% of this country is desert, and about a solid 30% is plains, arid plains. How are these floods so bad? Then you realize that there's a giant river running down the middle of the country, and... It's it's getting bad. It's getting bad with Pakistan. I'll just say that much. Uh, I mean, whole villages are just getting submerged now. And it's just more and more. So, hopefully, the flooding can cease. And they can, you know, they can have a chance to start rebuilding. I mean, goodness. So, uh, good luck to Pakistan with that. Uh, In the Middle East, specifically the Gulf, we have... Iranian Revolutionary Guards seizing ships. Uh, there was this container ship. It was a smaller one, not one of the larger freight ships you see. But the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, they seized one of these ships, and which they accused was smuggling almost a million liters of diesel. Uh, supposedly, see, uh, supposedly they were heading towards Europe, and I guess black market diesel trade is about to be at a all-time high with the Europeans about to face one of the worst winters since the second half of the 1800s. Like, they're about to have, like, 
I don't even know what to uh, I don't know what to say about the Europeans. Like I thought it was just fringe elements in Germany and Britain talking about firewood. But apparently there are real like actual mainline politicians even in Moldova talking about firewood. And I I I just can't help but ask where are you going to get this firewood from? Where are you going to get this firewood from, dude? Like, wh- where is it going to come from? I-, I bring up the point again. There was barely enough firewood to go around in the early 1800s. And, and the, your populations are double, triple what they used to be back then. Where are you going to get this firewood from? The, the forests aren't bigger than they used to be back in the 1800s. The, there was no shortage of forests back in the 1800s. There's plenty of shortage now. Where are you going to get this firewood? Are we about to see mass deforestation in Europe? Or are they going to import it at a higher price? Probably from places like Brazil and the United States and Canada. And secretly Russia on the down low. But maybe Norway and Sweden. But goodness, how much firewood are you going to import? Like, we're going for this green agenda, but you're going to be burning firewood to keep your homes heated. Well, that That's, in terms of greenhouse emissions, if the goal is to reduce those, since the greenhouse emission, that's way worse than just using coal. You'd be better off burning coal. That, that's how bad that would be for greenhouse emissions. But burning firewood is okay. Burning coal and natural gas is evil. <laughs> Having oil is the greatest sin you can possibly commit in the green new world. Uh, I, I don't know what to say about Europe. I don't know what to say. Uh, but actually, I do know what to say. Uh, we're going to have a great time reporting on them. You know, this is this is going to give me a whole lot of content that... That's sort of the, the, the silver lining in all this. I'm going to have a whole lot of content to work with at the expense of people's lives and livelihoods. And while I do feel slightly guilty, I'm the guy advocating domestic energy production. I'm the guy advocating coal and nuclear. I'm the guy advocating undoing the sanctions. Um, that, that's what I've been advocating this entire time. So my guilt only goes so far they got themselves into this mess. So, I'll have lots to talk about uh, as we get closer and closer to the winter. Uh, it was incredibly chilly this morning. I, I live in America, um, in Illinois. It was very chilly this morning. I actually got to put on my sweats again. And that, if Europe is anything like over here, I mean, worse, worse than that, the 80s in our temperatures. But the cold is coming. The cold is coming. So what happens to Europe when they get screwed by winter? Because the gas isn't coming back even if they undo the sanctions. Like, I honestly do not know what the Europeans are going to do to fix this. I'm not sure they can. They're just going to have to eat the loss. Like, until they can get domestic energy up and running at a proper scale to where it means something they're just gonna have to sit here and take this L 
and it's a very, 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 very big and very cold L that they're about to take. And it's 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 gonna be bad in Europe, but we'll talk about it. You know, we'll uh, hey hey, I'm an ocean away. Oh yeah, but that's Europe about to go through a humanitarian crisis, and you have uh, I guess on a secondary note this story about the Iranian Revolutionary Guard seizing ships in the Gulf, further, you know, furthers along that trend we've noticed. I talked about it more in a previous episode on how the freedom of the seas is really just evaporating before our eyes. And this does not show to the contrary. In fact, the f no one's even talking about this. No one's even talking about it. Freedom of the seas is dead. No one is even talking about how the Iranian Revolutionary Guard just seized this container ship full of gas, well, full of diesel, and walked away with it. Now, the great irony is they're probably going to sell it too. They're, they're probably going to sell it too. And the guys who they stole it from, who were smuggling it out of the Middle East, they're probably just going to watch as all of their money gets goes to the Iranians who are going to do exactly what they were planning on doing and probably to the exact same customers the Europeans but it's insane uh, it's, freedom of the seas is dead functionally anyway uh, at least on this smaller scale but how long until that scale works its way up we already have interstate violence over tankers and containers with Israel and Iran tar deliberately targeting each other's shipping how long until this reaches other countries? Only a matter of time, in my opinion. And, well, eventually you're going to get to a point where some real fireworks are going to go off over the issue of shipping. And that throws into question the stability of the entire Middle East. And the Middle East isn't exactly known for stability right now. But the one thing that was sacred was energy. But if oil is no longer sacred, well, well if the transportation of oil out of the region is no longer sacred and is instead treated like fair game well goodness the Belt and Road suddenly becomes a lot more attractive for countries who don't want to send a ship out to sea where it's just gonna get raided and ransacked and pillaged and have everything stolen from it they're just gonna get robbed blind in the high seas and then, and then what? Even less gas and oil to Europe? Now, now instead of just a gas crisis, the Europeans have an oil crisis too? It, the floor is just falling out. And from just looking at the trends that we're seeing and we're observing, the floor is about to come out from the, beneath a lot of people. And it'll be interesting to see who those people are specifically. Uh, all of Europe is on the list. With the sole exception of Norway probably Romania, probably Hungary, and of course Russia. But these, this is going to cause a lot of transitions. Uh, it, it, we'll wait and see to you know, gauge whether that transition is good or bad for certain people, but a lot of people are going to lose really badly from this. So we'll observe, as we always do. 
Uh, in Mexico, Mexico has given its military control over the country's National Guard. We have more tribe-on-tribe -tribe violence uh, in Sudan. We we talked about that a little bit a couple uh, a couple months ago, months ago, but it appears to be continuing as Sudan is struggling to keep its situation together, which would be hard for any country when you have a coup on top of a coup on top of a coup. I'm not even sure what number they're at right now. But I, I'm, I am sure that it's definitely not helping with regards to the stability of their nation. We have Nigeria rescuing 15 children from human traffickers. Uh, so this is actually a, some pretty good news. Uh, Nigeria become, uh, doing good things in their neighborhood. Uh, they'll probably, they're on my list of countries who are probably going to be on the winner's list of the second scramble for Africa if they play their cards right they have a really good chance in europe sweden democrats uh, that's a a right-wing party in sweden uh, not to be confused with the democrats in the united states the sweden democrats appear to be winning in the national elections them and their coalition partners uh in sweden so we may end up having a more right-wing government in sweden and we'll see if they actually follow through on their policies because uh, there's been a lot of primarily right-wing blowback against a lot of these sanctions policies and pro-ukraine policies that have been taken up in europe so we'll see if these this political party this coalition really because it's uh, this is a parliamentary system we'll see if they follow through on these criticisms and do something about it like undoing the sanctions that that'd be the biggest immediate thing undoing the sanctions and but we'll see if they actually do it or if it was just talk which is always a possibility when you're dealing with politicians and the same i guess can be said for italy whose elections are coming up and it's looking like they're they too are going to have a swing to the right uh, and their right-wing parties have been similarly critical of the pro-Ukraine and anti-Russia policies, the sanctions which have been hurting themselves, we'll see. We'll see. They, this is a major change, but we'll see if something actually comes out of it. Uh, and I believe that's it for the rapid-fire news, and we'll get into the meat of this episode in just a moment. Alright, tying into the meat of this episode, and we'll start with the big news of the week. Uh, which is just about the only thing people are talking about more than Ukraine, and that is the death of the Queen of England. Queen Elizabeth II, the longest reigning British monarch, has died and will be succeeded by Prince, well, now King, King Charles III. And she's, uh, an interesting fact about this is that she beat out Queen Victoria, by seven years, Victoria being the previous longest reigning monarch who reigned from 1837 to 1901, and basically had an entire era named after her, the Victorian era. So, she lived very long, and reigned almost as long, so, pretty big accomplishment for her, uh, and she's been succeeded by King Charles III, but the first thing I notice about King Charles is that 
he's already very old and he only just took the throne. So I'm not sure how much longer he has in him before he kicks the bucket. Now maybe he'll live to be as long as his mother, but life doesn't always play that way. Uh, now maybe he'll live it to be even longer, which will bring in the, that'll bring in even new questions, newer questions, because um, some people, some people deteriorate mentally when they get really, really up there in the age. Now, luckily for Britain, it didn't look like Queen Elizabeth uh, had those issues. And perhaps, uh, and because of that, there's a good chance that he won't have these issues either, but it's a possibility. Uh, look no further than Joe Biden. <laughs> but he's already old. So even if he remains in good health and lives a while, how long until his age becomes a hindrance to his ability to be a... Well, a a responsible head of state because the uh, people say that the queen the king they don't really have power i doubt that heavily the these are the heads of state for not just the united kingdom but for canada australia and new zealand they hold great influence so i i i, I press x to doubt here they hold great influence and great power it's just usually not public and is usually uh as exemplified by queen elizabeth is usually exercised sparingly but will he exercise that power sparingly that's one question and the other question is as he gets older will he continue to exercise that power sparingly because transitions for monarchies have a strong tendency to have weird things pop up at the, that time that challenge the new monarch. So will he be able to handle that? That's another question. But going back to his age and the likelihood that he may not be in there for very long, even if he does live the rest of his life to be really long, he's already old. He's already lived a really long time. There's only so much you can push the envelope before natural mortality comes to get you. So who comes after him? Uh, that would be Prince William. Now, William doesn't look anywhere near as old as Charles does. So in the event that he takes the throne, he is, uh, you know, all things remaining equal and assuming good health. He's likely to be the, the king of England in the near future and He's probably going to stay in there for a decent bit of time. That That's what it's looking like, you know, thinking about this in a long-term perspective. Uh, so that's what uh, the situation is in England. There's a funeral for the Queen that's coming up in a couple days, I believe. Uh, meanwhile, her coffin is being transported to Scotland, where the Royal Cemetery is. And you've had uh, videos of... Farmers and their tractors forming a, a royal blockade, uh, basically lining up along the street, along the road, really, where she's, her motorcade is traveling, carrying her, carrying her, uh, her coffin. Yeah, for some reason I, I blinked on the word, but carrying 
their coffin all the way up to the cemetery. And, you know, it's wholesome to see. It's wholesome to see. Even though, you know, I, I'm over here just getting absolutely inundated with all this. And as I'm getting inundated with this almost as badly as the, the Ukrainian propaganda at the beginning of the Russo-Ukrainian War, I, as an American, am of the uniquely American perspective of we seceded from these people, so why exactly should I care? But it's, uh, now that, that's how I feel, you know, that, that was my initial reaction to this, but this is still a major shakeup on the geopolitical scene. Again, this is the head of state for Britain, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. So now they have a new head of state. Now they have a new direction, and I guess we can also throw in that Charles is much more sympathetic to things like the World Economic Forum. Things like the things, I keep saying things, but things along the line with what people like Klaus Schwab advocates for, which is open, blatant, unapologetic depopulation of the serfs, which is everyone who isn't rich, and specifically everyone who isn't rich and in the club. Because you can be rich and outside the club, which is what Donald Trump is, which is part of the reason they hate him so much. Uh, and I guess the same, the same also goes for Putin and Xi Jinping and a number of other leaders. You have, to, you have to be in the club first and foremost, and you have to be well off. They, they have no room for the, the peons, us common folk. Us, us common folk. That that'll be that'll be the new colored folk in their world, <laughs> but but I I digress. We're uh, I guess it's safer to say such things since we're skimming past the point of oh it's just a conspiracy theory to no you you can you can literally go to their website and see what these people are advocating for, and they pull the wool off the eyes when it comes to what the green agenda is meant to do, it's deliberate deindustrialization. It's deliberate gets you away from fossil fuels so that they can control your life. I mean, what is the purpose of an electric car? They can hack it. They can control how many miles you go. They can control uh, uh, they can control where and how fast you go there. I mean, they they can hack your car. Think think about that. Just think about that possibility. Someone can hack your car and you can't go anywhere. Oh, heavens. Then you get into the the already, you know, unflattering limitations of electric vehicles as they are. They, the recharge time is longer than the time you get to actually drive the damn thing. So now imagine, on top of that, you can't go anywhere unless they approve it. And, and this is the things that they advocate for. They want control over every aspect of people's lives. And they are offended that people don't want them to have this control that they have no intention of using responsibly. Uh, now, they probably think that they're responsible, but no, they're, n they're not. But they're, they're very clear about their depopulation agenda. These are the people who go beyond, you know, just talking about, oh, we're at... Seven billion people. The, the world can't sustain this. Oh, we're at seven and a half billion people. We, we're getting overpopulated. Oh, we're at 
we're, we're coming up on 8 billion people. So the, the, that alone, the fact that the population keeps growing and we're, we haven't reached this Malthusian, uh, uh, you know, this edge of the cliff, so to speak, that, oh, once you go over it, it's just, it's the end of the world. We haven't reached that. So that, that alone should tell you these people have no credibility. These depopulationists have no credibility. And yet, they go forward with it anyway, because why would they be wrong? Uh, you're wrong. And, and the reason I even bother going into this tangent about World Economic Forum stuff is because Charles is openly in league with them. He's very sympathetic to the Green Agenda and very sympathetic to the things that they advocate for. I mean, now, he'll probably be much more quiet about it, as he usually has been, but he's in league. So what does that mean for Britain? Yeah. What does that mean for Australia, Canada, New Zealand? Well, probably means they're going to have a rough time with this Green Agenda stuff. Although, we'll see what happens with the Green Agenda uh, coming with this coming winter uh, and the political backlash that it's inevitably going to garner. When people freeze, and when people in first world countries who pride themselves on not having these third world issues have these third world issues and have to reconcile with the fact that certain people advocated these policies that created the problem, and they're going to get rid of the policies, and a lot of them are, a lot of the people are going to have to go too. So, what, is that going to mean King Charles? Because it's it's probably not going to mean the, the World Economic Forum. The, They'll, they'll just fly to some other country. That, that, that's how they operate. They don't, they're not bound by national borders. Or at least they don't think they are. So what happens when you are, when you have your new monarch, who for however long he's going to be in there, we, we can assume he's going to be there for at least five years, maybe ten, you know. He's, he's going to be there for at least a presidency, you know four to eight years so what happens to britain in that time because uh, again if are we going to go down the world economic forum agenda or is britain going to finally take advantage of brexit they like I, i've just been watching in disbelief as these people who seceded from europe are going to do exactly the things that europe does and get exactly the same results. Britain could have walked away from this conflict, this Ukraine conflict, way stronger than all of Europe. Like, from a relative point of view, they could have been cutting deals. They could they they could still have energy, while the Russians didn't. Well, not not the Russians. Oh my goodness. Imagine imagine Russia running out of energy, even though they're the ones who supply it. They could still have energy. They, they could have been sitting back, cutting deals. Oh, look at that. The Europeans are destroying themselves industrially, economically. We can eat up their market share everywhere else. We can use this to build up our own industry. And, you know, things like that. That could genuinely benefit Britain and genuinely use the situation, the current situation, to their maximum benefit. They did not do that, so now they're in the same boat as the rest of Europe at a time when their monarch just died. So, uh, things are... things are definitely shaking up in Britain. And there'll be uh, yet another interesting piece on the board to watch. Uh, 
but that being said, Britain and their monarchy has a very rocky road ahead. Um, I'm not entirely sure if Prince William is going to be the best, but uh, hopefully he's hopefully he's decent. <laughs> That's about all you can ask for with leaders these days. Hopefully he's decent, but they they've got a rocky road ahead. There's no mistaking that. So we will see what comes of the United Kingdom, our love, lovely, lovely mother country, who we seceded from, by the way, j j just so everyone knows, you know, everyone who's uh, kissing up to the queen, you know, we, we seceded from these people. Ha ha ha. <laughs> but uh, rest in peace, Queen Elizabeth II. And God save Britain, because God already saved her. But now, now we move into the other story that we have for the meat of this episode, which is a continuation of our talk on the Kherson Offensive. Uh, last week, we talked about the long-awaited Kherson Offensive and how it was going for the Ukrainians at that time. So now a week has gone by. And we can see how things developed. Uh, last week, we went over how Ukraine had established a pretty solid bridgehead on the eastern side of the Inguletz River. And they were attacking Russian positions in a, a series of waves that, uh, in an attempt to keep up their momentum of their attack. Because they made the breakthrough, they got the bridgehead. And naturally, after months of static warfare... You're not going to want to let this momentum die. You're going to want to keep it going for as much as you can. And for as long as you can. To gain as much as you can. But the cost was that this resulted in heavy losses. Namely, the destruction of Ukraine's first and second waves. We talked about how they sent... They, they had four waves prepared. They sent the first and second in. Uh, they, those were the first two waves. They went in back-to-back, back, and this force, totaling about 15,000 men, was destroyed. Uh, destroyed completely. Uh, a lot of deaths and, uh, and a lot of wounded. So that's 15,000 men that aren't coming back to the battle for a while, especially the dead ones. But that's a pretty large force to just lose in a matter of days when before this we were talking like 20 maybe 25,000 uh you know actually dead on both sides or somewhere around that uh, that was like the the upper end figure for both estimations uh with a much larger number of wounded on the Ukrainian side than on the Russians uh you know going beyond that upper end death figure you know like i, I I was looking at a casualty figure for the Ukrainians of around 100,000, with the vast majority of that being wounded. So, you factor in the 20, you factor in potentially 25,000 dead, that leaves 75,000 wounded. Those, the numbers weren't that high for the Russians. It was somewhere around 15,000 at the time, although now it might be at 25,000 potentially dead. And who knows how many wounded? Probably at least as many wounded, so that's 50,000. But those are the numbers we were looking at back in May, you know. So to see 
half of that figure, that 25,000 upper estimate figure, gone in a matter of days. Uh, now, of course, this isn't all deaths. This is casualties. It's deaths and wounded. But to see that number pop up in a matter of days suggests the intensity of the fighting and how badly it's it was going for the Ukrainians at the time. They, they were losing massive amounts of men, and the Russians were just sitting there spamming artillery like they have been doing the entire war. And it, at that time, looked highly likely that the third and fourth waves, which were moving in right after the first and second, it looked like they were going to meet the same fate. As of now, they haven't, uh, this is for now, although they, the Ukrainians haven't stopped their attack in Kherson, but the Ukrainians have also been attacking in other areas. While they've been stopped in Kherson, which means that those third and fourth waves might actually still meet that same fate, the Ukrainians have made significant headway just on a different part of the front line. Uh, not near Kherson, but instead the Ukrainians have made gains near Kharkov, where a simultaneous Ukrainian offensive has been taking place. And here, it looks, it looks like Ukraine has actually caught Russia off guard. Uh, because th there's lots and lots of area that's been taken, uh, taken back by the Ukrainians with very minimal resistance. Nothing like well, what we see happening in places like the Donbass or even in Kherson, where the Ukrainians began their attack. It's... It's uh, that they they haven't taken this much territory. Ever. Like like ever they've been on the, the Ukrainians have been on the back foot since the beginning of the war, but now for the first time, it looks like it's the Russians who are on the back foot. Uh, Russia's response to this has been to order the retreat of the troops around Kharkov and around Izium. Uh, they're being deployed primarily to the south. You know, in the Donbass area, the the land corridor north of Mariupol, uh, so that they don't lose that one, and to their forces in, you know, Kherson and Zaporozhye. And this has um, sparked a little bit of debate. It's, this is primarily coming out of the Duran, namely Alexander for the Duran, who talked about the good possibility that this was the fact that the Ukrainians are even taking this much territory is because the, the Russians had begun this redeployment earlier and are only just now saying it. And that would potentially explain why there's been this massive hole in their lines that's just been exposed for the entire world to see. Now that's potentially the case. I don't know if that's the case. I'll, I'll just put it out there so that, you know, if it ends up being the case, we can at the very least know that it was a possibility. But for now, it looks as if the Ukrainians have caught the Russians off guard. Uh, the Russians have responded, and they've responded pretty strongly. Uh, they, 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 they were redeploying their troops. It's debatable as to whether or not they had begun this redeployment before, uh, earlier. Although it does appear to be still in good order. The Russians haven't been losing many men. Um... But the Russians, in response to Ukraine attacking this area that they've just left, was to shut down the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant. 
the one that was being shelled and that the Ukrainians accused the Russians of shelling, even though it was occupied by the Russians at the time, uh, which the IAEA walked in and found out that, oh, it, was, it, it, it wasn't the Russians shelling it, which implies that the only other party in this situation was doing the shelling, that party being the Ukrainians, and then magically the shelling stopped. <laughs> but Russia shut down the nuclear power plant now, and an interesting fact about this power plant, and I learned, I was watching Jackson Hinkle, this is another good source for news on the Ukrainian war. This power plant produced, uh, at max capacity, it was producing upwards of 60, anywhere from 50 to 60% of Ukraine's energy grid, uh, the power in their power grid. That That's a lot. That's a whole lot of power. Um... Uh, but anyway, well, not anyway, uh, yeah. before we move on, I, I'll sort of throw out my guess, my estimation on how this situation came to be, when just last week, it looked like the Ukrainian offensive was failing like its previous offensives did. Now, every they're the talk of the town, with their, mas- their massive successes near Kharkov instead of Kherson. Kherson has been very, very quietly swept under the rug. But my guess on how this came to be is that a number of Russian officers earlier on in the war who were in charge of positioning troops got overconfident by the successes of Russia and the, you know the low casualties the steady attrition of Ukraine's troops through artillery the general inability of the Ukrainians to push Russian troops wherever they the Russians chose to dig in themselves uh you know in the lead up to the Kherson offensive, these officers probably uh, probably were deploying Russian regular troops to Kherson in preparation for their offensive, and to the Donbass, where most of Russia's uh, fighting had been prior, you know, send the troops to where they're needed the most. Uh, instead of guarding the area around Kharkov, they probably left token forces and more irregular troops to guard Kharkov, and... With the minimal fighting near Kharkov, and uh, compared to places like the Donbass and what was expected of Kherson, these officers likely bet on the trend continuing. The trend that there was very little fighting around Kharkov, and that the Ukrainians can't mount successful attacks. They probably bet on that trend continuing, and this decision went largely unnoticed since Russia was still doing well in the war, and it's a pretty sound decision-making to move your troops to where they're needed instead of keeping them in places where they're not needed. And then, Ukraine, likely tipped off by U.S. intelligence, uh, saw their opportunity, and they went for it. Uh, they Now Russia's on the back foot, and Ukraine is pressing their advantage to the fullest. That's how I think this situation came about. Uh, we shall... We may never know. But that's that's my best guess on how exactly the situation could seemingly change so quickly in the matter of days when before the Ukrainians were never able to do something like this before. So that's how I view it happening. And the Ukrainians are pressing the advantage as much as they can. Uh, they really are. Uh, it cannot be stressed enough how significant this is, because, again, 
Ukraine has not made gains like this in the entire war. So it is as newsworthy as it has become because it, looking at this from the outside in, it looked like Russia had their goose cooked from day one uh, with all that artillery spam. Uh, the, the Ukrainians have just been struggling and fighting for their life against that artillery spam. Uh, but here, Ukraine is taking back territory at an impressive rate. I will stress, though, the, the danger in their success. As Ukraine pushes deeper into Russian-occupied territory, the more Russian troops they're going to have to fight. Because I, I, I imagine eventually, eventually, the Russians are going to have to do something about the Ukrainians taking all this territory. Because the Russians have you know, painted themselves as the liberators of the Russian-speaking peoples and ethnic Russians in Ukraine from the Nazi regime in Ukraine. Those optics don't work well with surrendering land. Though Those optics are very much incompatible with surrendering land, especially on the scale that they're giving it up. The Russians, to compensate, may... The Russians may actually be preparing for a larger offensive of their own, but they may have to compensate for this perceived catastrophe. I won't say that it is or isn't a catastrophe for the Russians right now. Um, I'm sure that they'll get it under control eventually. I mean, if their artillery is, has anything to say about it, they will. But painting yourself as the liberator and then giving up land to the the scum of the earth that those narratives don't the, the narr that narrative and those optics don't mix so we might see the russians get a little bit more aggressive now uh to try to to try to regain their honor so to speak that that's a possibility although the russians appear to be pretty level-headed about this the russian public is outraged but the russian leadership at the very least seems to still be you know cool-headed uh, so we'll see what becomes of this, but these are pretty good optics. I mean, these are very good optics for the Ukrainians, and they probably just won themselves another couple billion dollars out of the U.S. pockets, <laughs> out of American pockets, and another round of weapons sales, which also come out of our pockets because they're not paying a dime for them. Uh, that's the power of Lend-Lease. So... As as annoying as getting swamped with all these stories can be, instead of dismissing it, I decided, you know what? Why not consider? Why not? Why not look at this from the Ukrainian perspective? Why not? You know. And when I did that, I saw the gains being made by, you know, from this perspective, my government as a potentially great sign, a sign that we might be able to push Russia out of our country, which is sort of the unspoken victory condition for Ukraine. If they can push all Russian troops out of all Ukrainian territory, they win. And by definition, that would mean defeating the Donbass republics too, and that would be a total victory. That That's the unspoken victory condition for Ukraine. So that's what we might see. That this is a potentially great sign. But at the same time, I can't help but consider the fact 
that this hasn't happened in the entire war. It's it's the reason this is such a big deal. We've never made gains like this before. And considering that at the same time that this is happening, the Kherson Offensive, which we were all talking about and all betting the family farm on, that offensive was stopped dead in its tracks so quickly, uh, and we lost 15,000 men, I start to become suspicious of this success. The Russians are very clearly not off their game. I mean, again, they just killed the Kherson Offensive while nobody was looking. And they never stopped their own offensive in the Donbass, even while we're attacking them. Even while we're taking all this land near Kharkov, even while they're uh, just violating our forces near uh, near Kherson, so why are they faltering here, around Kharkov, and why are they faltering now? I look at the territory being captured by, uh, again, from a Ukrainian perspective, my government, I look at the territory being captured, and part of me says, okay, great, now dig in before the Russians can get their shit together. But then I, I realize Ukraine's best option is to continue a war of movement. I mean, think about it. These, just think about the past few months of the war. If we play the static warfare game, Russia's going to win. They have more artillery, they have more shells, they have more planes, they have more men, they've been taking fewer casualties than us, and their economy is doing better. Their currency is as strong as it's been in a while. It's one of the strongest in the world now. If not the strongest, they they don't appear to be having these issues. They're not even mobilized. Their economy is not mobilized for war. And they're beating us in the war of attrition, even though the war is being fought on our soil. We cannot win a war of attrition against Russia. Again, even though the war is being fought on our Ukrainian soil. Ukraine needs a war of movement. If we want to win. It, uh, you know... If want to win the war rather than just fight the war, Ukraine needs a war of movement. Which means that Ukraine has to milk this offensive for all it's worth. But again, I, I just can't help but become suspicious. Are we really beating the Russians? Are we, have we actually turned the tide of the war after all these months of fighting and after all these other failed offenses? Did Russia truly just drop the ball this time? Or, again, and this is me being suspicious, or are thousands of our men instead being set up for failure? What if the Russians attack? What if they attack the flanks of this salient we're making near Kharkov and they cut off our attacking force? Overnight, it would go from looking like we've made a hole in Russia's lines to having a massive hole in our own lines. We can't recover from that. So, this offensive is going well for the Ukrainians. And if you're Ukrainian, you want this to keep up, because the war of movement is your only real option here. Uh, aside from just getting ground down into dust, while you empty out the Western military uh, stockpiles of Western arms, which are not being replaced faster than you're using them, which means they are finite. And eventually, 
Western countries are just going to stop giving you those weapons because they need them for themselves and their own militaries. This is a, a remarkably finite supply of goods that the Russians are burning through because we have to fight them and we cannot replace what we're losing fighting the Russians. The West is not replacing what they're giving us faster than we're, they're giving it to us. We can't win a war of attrition. We can't let this go on for another six months or another eight, 10, 12 months. We can't let this go on. We have to find a way to win this. And a war of movement is our, our best option. It's our only option for winning the war, not just fighting it. But if we go with the war of movement, then eventually the Russians are going to hit us back in a war of movement. And if we lose too many forces too quickly, we can't replace that. I mean, we're losing so many men just in the, Car the, the Kherson offensive. And we're even taking pretty decent losses in the Kharkov offensive, even though we're making all these gains. How then does this look in, say, a month from now? How does this look? Are we still winning? Or have the Russians begun some sort of counterattack and they're beating us badly? How does this look in a month? How does this play out? Do we dig in? Do we? And go right back to what we were doing before. But now the Russians have to grind through this territory again. And we just take these horrific losses. Because. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I really don't know. There's talk that the Russians might escalate their special military operation. You know, maybe it's escalating to war. Or maybe it's escalating to an anti-terrorism operation. We saw what happened in Syria when they said we're gonna we're gonna wage an anti-terrorism operation in Syria, we saw what happened to ISIS. We saw what happened to those rebels. We cannot allow the same to happen to us. And with the Russians being embarrassed, with the Russian population, the Russian public being embarrassed from what happened from this offensive that we're successfully launching near Kharkov. That gives all the political cover to Russia's leadership to make such an escalation. Then we have the Russian Air Force to deal with. Then we have Russian artillery uh, striking at critical infrastructure. Uh, which is one of the things that Russia did when they responded to this successful offensive. Uh, they didn't just shut down the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant. They actually did a number of missile strikes on various power plants throughout Ukraine. So on top of shutting down around half the Ukraine's energy production, they shut down even more by killing power plants across the country. So now you have blackouts in Ukraine right now that might not come back on. I, I mean, losing half your... They're not getting that back. They lost the Zaporozhye power plant. They're not getting that back. That's half their energy. Europe can't help them. The Europeans don't have the energy production to do that. They're about to go through their own crisis. They were betting on, they were even betting on Ukraine selling energy to Europe. So the Europeans can't help you. Uh, 
so what happens now? I'm pretty sure the electricity just goes to the military and the military only. How long until that creates unrest in the streets? If the Russians are now striking at critical infrastructure, civilian infrastructure, well, how long until they start doing decapitation strikes on our government? Like, where, where the Ukrainians are in such a precarious position right now, even on the heels of this success. Because where does it go? What's the end? Well, we know what the end goal has to be. But where do they go from here specifically? What are the steps that they take? Because if they try to go into the Donbass, they're, they're going to get ass blasted. Let's, let's just be honest with ourselves here. It, even if the Russians drop the ball, those, those militias in the, Don, in the Donetsk and Lugansk People's Republics, they're not going to drop the ball. They have plenty of experience fighting you by themselves. They're not going to drop the ball. So you're, you're not going to get past them. What, what, what if the Russians do escalate to, say, an anti-terrorism operation? What if the Russians escalate and actually declare war on Ukraine? What happens then? We cannot handle the full might of the Russian military. We can't handle the full might of the Russian Air Force. Where does Ukraine go from here? Like, and that's a, that's a serious question. Even if you look at this from a pro-Ukrainian perspective, where do you go from here? And like, there, there's talk that there's going to be an offensive uh, towards Mariupol. The, there's a lot of offensives and lots of men being lost. We are throwing away these reserves of men that we've spent all this time building up and we're losing equipment. Like the Kherson offensive has lost so much military equipment. It's insane. They're like the irreplaceable stuff like tanks and armored vehicles. We're losing men by the thousands. What happens to our lines? And this goes back to what I talked about the last time we covered this offensive. Well, actually, this is before the offensive had begun. And we were talking about the absence of the offensive. And I said, what if they do do this offensive? They'll throw away their reserves and then their lines become too thin. They can't hold them and the Russians can just press them whenever they want, wherever they want. And the Ukrainians won't have the troops to fill the gaps anymore. Just look at the Donbass and how the Russians just eat away at Ukraine's manpower and their reserves by sitting there bombing them with artillery. Again, the artillery spam is the greatest menace to the Ukrainians in this war. It's, it's just an absolute menace. The Russians sit there, completely out of sight of the Ukrainians, bomb them half to death. The Ukrainian brigades they just get torn up and they have to fall back. But then they have to be replaced with someone else. And then that's, that someone else goes through the same torture. They go through the same torture. And it just repeats over and over and over again. And the Russians have no shortage of artillery shells to do this with. So what does Ukraine do? Because they're, they're throwing away their the reserves. If this offensive towards Mariupol, that it, it's looking like they're setting up, they might not actually go through with it, but it's looking like they're setting up. If that offensive fails, Ukraine's going to be down 
tens of thousands of men. Tens of thousands of men they cannot replace. Uh, well, not, not fast enough. They can replace it. They have 40 million people. Uh, they have volunteers from the West. But they can't replace that fast enough to cover the losses. And the Russians aren't going to give them the time to do that. If the Russians smell blood, they're going to go for it. And Ukraine might lose their country in the process. Where does Ukraine go from here? And that's, that's sort of the big question in my mind. Again, this is a great offensive for the Ukrainians. This is great for the Ukrainians. They, they've won themselves a couple more billion dollars. They've won themselves more military equipment. They've won themselves more PR. But where do they go now? What happens now? Do they do they go for do they go for the Donbass? Do they go for Mariupol? Do they go for Crimea? Uh, how are they going to get to Crimea? The Kherson offensive was uh, murdered in cold blood by Russian artillery. So how are you going to get to Crimea? Do you attack into Russia proper? That's a great idea. You you'll declare the war for the Russians if you do that. Where, where does Ukraine go? And uh, that's the big question for me. Where does Ukraine go? Because we know how this has to end if Ukraine wants to win. They have to push Russia's troops out. Or outlast the Russians long enough for Russia to pull its troops out on its own. Which is unlikely given the rate of losses that the Ukrainians are suffering. They have to force the issue with their own military. But how do they do that? How do they get through the Donbass? How do they get through Kherson? How do they get to Crimea? How do they how do they do it? Attacking Russia isn't the smartest idea. It's it's a, it's on there, it's on the table. It's probably going to be counterproductive. But uh, what do you do? How do you reach this this inevitable end goal? There's no other end goal for the Ukrainians other than to push Russia out of their territory. How do you get there? It's, uh, and, and this is, again, why I, looking at this from a Ukrainian perspective, am suspicious that this is a, a setup. Ukraine is being set up for failure. How do you make these gains in Kharkov, but you're not able to make them anywhere else? Because that suggests that where the Russians are prepared to fight you, you lose. And where the Russians aren't prepared to fight you, you can potentially win. But what happens then? The Russians just roll back in with their artillery and their air, their air power. And we're, we're losing thousands of men here. We're talking tens of thousands of men. This is the biggest event of the war. Since the beginning, of course. Ukraine cannot keep up these losses. They are not inflicting anywhere near uh, comparable losses on the Russians while they're doing this. So where does Ukraine go? That's the big question. That is the big question. But I'll leave it at that because I, I have a feeling we'll, we'll find out soon enough, but I'll leave it at that. And that is all I have for you today, my lovely listeners. I do hope you've enjoyed Today's uh, broadcast on my geopolitical podcast, there's a new king in Britain, 
and Ukraine is in a very tight spot. So we can definitely see the world is changing, but we'll also we'll also take some comfort in knowing that we'll watch it together. Now I've been your host Tyshawn Wade, and you've been listening to this week in geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday, servus.